our heroes are all around us. They weren't born heroes. They aren't bulletproof. Sometimes they wear masks. Sometimes they make us shine. They care about people. They help us when we need them most. There is a hero in all of us. Let us unleash your inner hero. Call us now. Our heroes are made at Kangan Institute. Visit kangan.edu.au or call 13TAFE. Eligibility criteria applies. Some or all of this training is delivered with Victorian and Commonwealth Government funding. RTO 03077. Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Hi, welcome everybody into Garden Views. We are continuing our extrapolation from terrestrial law to extraterrestrial law. And for those of you who are joining us for the first time, basically I'm a little bit obsessed with what might be the law of the sea, uh, I'm sorry, the law of space. and. I started with the law of the sea and uh, some related topics and keep finding more and more uh, layers of this onion to unpeel uh, so that we can try to figure out what the body of law ultimately be will be with the laws of space. Um, lucky enough to have two great guests today, both are Maryland-based attorneys, because that's, that's my home base, as you all know, uh, and fortunate enough to have Todd Lochner on and Mark Miller. So I'm going to say hi to both of them. And hey, Mark, how you doing? I'm good, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for saying yes. Uh, for those of you who don't know, which is probably 100% of you, Mark is an old friend of mine. I've known Mark probably 32, 33 years now. I think that you were actually in my wedding. I was, remarkably. Yeah. Um, now, I'm divorced, so we can blame Mark for that, too, as well. Um, no, actually, it has nothing to do with it. Uh, he's blissfully in the sense of all of that. But yeah, this, this goes back to as far as I know, I'm just, I'm <laughs> divorced many years as well. And Todd is returning back. Those of you who don't remember Todd, he was our expert on admiralty and maritime law. So you may want to check out that show because this is a direct outgrowth of that one. Uh, though I, I think I probably would have gotten around to this eventually, but it became obvious. So Todd, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. How are you? Very well, and thank you for having me back. I guess you didn't get too much hate mail after the last podcast. Yeah, I'm very disappointed in my lack of hate mail that I get generally. Um, none of it comes from Garden Views, I will say that. The, the hate that I get is mostly from the wrestling side of things, because wrestling fans are lunatics, um, which is where I fit in. And I don't really get hate mail, but I get... I, I get strange stuff on Garden Doom, which is okay because it's a, it's a it's a strangest kind of show. But you know there are even though a lot of it operates in the fringes of non science based research or or non orthodox science based research, even though there's several different disciplines, the people in their particular disciplines are very dogmatic about it. So their way is the right way. So there's a lot of that, but. The way I present that show is I'm not, I don't really have an advocacy position. I just, I let the guests lead. I ask questions and I let the audience decide. So people don't really direct it at me. That, that was not buying, that wasn't, the show's uh, format is intentional, but, um, to avoid hate was not intentional. It's just that I use the show so that I don't have to research things myself. I mean, that, that, that simply as it is. If I'm curious, somebody can tell me about it and the, the audience comes along for the ride. 
these shows are a little bit more academic. And because they're academic and fact-based, they, they tend to be less controversial. So why are we talking about the things that the, the things I haven't even said what they are yet? So we're talking about labor law, laws basically around ports and ports with international uh, freightage, tonnage, cargo, maybe even humans, who knows? So today we're talking about two things, one called the Jones Act, another one called the Longshoremen's Act. And Todd is primarily going to talk to us about the Jones Act, and Mark is going to talk to us about the Longshoremen's Act. So Mark, please grace the audience with your background and your expertise in the Longshoremen's Act, and then you can sort of tell us what it is. Sure. So as you pointed out, I've known you for at least 30 years because we went to law school together. And... After law school for the last 29 years, roughly coming up on 29 years, I've been practicing in a suburb of Baltimore. And of course, there's the Port of Baltimore, which has Dunnock Marine Terminal, uh, different marine terminals around, including now Trade Point Atlantic, which is down at Sparrows Point, which is getting quite busy. Um, but my entire legal career has been practicing injury law, essentially. So every case that I've handled, for the most part, um, has an injury of some sort of workers' compensation personal injury, and then also, as you point out, there's something called the Longshore Harbor Workers' Compensation Act. Um, because of just more of uh, circumstance and, and location, I could drive to the Port of Baltimore in like less than 10 minutes from where my office is. So I've, over the course of years, taken in these cases and uh, learned uh, from others. And there was a guy in um, Baltimore, who was sort of the godfather of longshore law. His name's Bernie Seville. Bernie was in Patton's army and was a scout uh, for Patton and is still alive. He's 96 or 97 years old. But he kept practicing until he was about 93 or 94 when he basically chose me to take over his practice. Part of taking over his practice was to become the editor of the essentially the Maryland Workers' Compensation Manual, which contains a section, a chapter devoted to the Longshore Act. So I am currently, I've been for the last two editions, the editor of the Longshore section of the Maryland Workers' Comp Manual. It contains, obviously, Maryland law, but also the Longshore Act, which is a, a, a U.S.-based law. It's across the whole country. It's a law passed by the U.S. Congress. Uh, and so that's sort of how I came to be. The editor was taken over for burning and carrying on what he had established. Uh, happy to talk to you about longshore law, who qualifies, how you qualify, what kind of people. I mean, typically you think of like longshoremen, right? Somebody mm -hmm. who's there unloading a ship. Uh, but there are others that as well that are covered. It's really a test of status and situs, meaning site where you're working. Are you, are you near the waterfront, essentially? And What's your status as an employee? Are you engaged in a maritime occupation? Uh, so you need to satisfy those two requirements to, to qualify under the Longshore Act. There are tons and tons and tons of cases that are very fact-specific as to who qualifies and who doesn't. We could spend many shows talking about you know, each individual one because each you know, there are little nuanced facts that may exclude someone or may include someone depending upon 
how the facts shake out. Well, don't volunteer because Todd has learned that the hard way. Um, let's, let's put it, let's put a pin in that and let's go to, to Todd and Todd, can you tell us what the, uh, first of all, tell folks a little bit about yourself and then also, uh, tell us what the Jones Act is and, and what, you know, basically sort of how Mark gave us an overview of the Longshore Act. Uh, what's the Jones Act? Certainly. Well, I'm Todd Lochner and, uh, I'm subjecting you to a second round of a uh, podcast with me. So I'm guaranteed to offend everyone because believe it or not, the Jones Act has actually been a very controversial subject mm-hmm. over the course of time. Um, I'm practicing here in Annapolis, Maryland, and I am the uh, chair of the Recreational Voting Committee of the Maritime Law Association of the United States. Um, this committee, you know, in the recreational side, we do deal with Jones Act, but not nearly as much as on the cargo and the shipping side. Um, with respect to Jones Act, we're going to have to do a tiny bit of history, though, because there are two sides to the Jones Act. There's what's known as the cabotage laws, and then there's the Jones Act personal injury claims. So effectively, if you go all the way back to the beginning of, well, really it was pre-World War I um, when everything got underway, what it came down to is that there was a case called the Osceola, if I recall it correctly. And it essentially said that a seaman may not recover for the negligence of a fellow servant. And that really left the seaman hanging out high and dry with no means of recovering for injury or death. Now, as you'll recall, during this time in our history in the United States, it was uh, the middle of the progressive era as we got through World War One and into the 20s. Um, we had a means by which to compensate railroad employees and one of the things that was done in first 1917 and failed based upon some Supreme Court cases to really accomplish its goal, and then again in 1920, was an enactment of a law which allows a seaman to sue his employer and to have a jury trial, which is not guaranteed. In fact, generally speaking, in Admiralty, you do not get a jury trial. But a Jones Act seaman was given the right to have a jury trial. He was also given the right to sue his employer. And, uh, of course, that included for the um, negligence of his fellow servants. More importantly, though, there was, uh, when I say more importantly, this was really kind of a labor longer in this call. So let's let him come back. All right. I am back. Sorry about that, guys. Um, obviously, it was on my end of things. Um, I don't know exactly where I lost you. Um, you, ha- you were talking about how the Jones Act allows... Uh, did it, did it, we were through the progressive era uh, in World War... in the midst of World War One, and it was uh, labor, and that I think that's when you froze... Um, but obviously you were, well, not obviously, but it sounds like you were going to circle it around to, uh, that servants were no longer immune from attacking other servants. The pirates could no longer, 
resolved disputes by sticking their hooks into each other, and the captain and the was immune. Well, let me see if I can do a little bit of take two, and you may have to edit if uh, I don't pick up at the right spot where you dropped off. That's fine. Well, um, we, we clearly have to edit anyway, so I, I thank you guys for your indulgence. Sorry about this. No worries. And um, Mark, if he's hearing this for the second time, will uh, note that I never never say it as well as the first time around um, when it just tip, trips off the tongue. So the short of it is that uh, in that progressive era, we had um, a situation where a Jones Act seaman or a seaman in general could not recover for the negligence of his fellow servant uh, against his employer. So the 1920 Act was a bit of a political throw in to get labor to come along without kicking and screaming too too much. Um, part of the progressive error, it allowed for the Jones Act seaman to have a jury trial and to, in fact, recover for death or injury uh, when it's based upon the negligence of his fellow servant. But cabotage was the other portion of the Jones Act. And this is what, from a political context, everyone wanted to bring the labor forces along without kicking and screaming too much. Um, so as you can well imagine, during World War One, there was a massive amount of shipbuilding going on in the United States. And the vast majority of the tonnage we essentially went from the United States having about 2% of the world's tonnage to almost 20% of the world's tonnage following World War One, whether by virtue of uh, ships being sunk and or our massive ability to build them. But we didn't get most of them off of the rails. As a matter of fact, at the end, we had a situation where we had tons of ships, tonnage, quite a few of them, um, to get us up to 20% worldwide which needed to be sold. So the government sold off ships cheaply, but they also wanted to have the ability to continue to have what we now know as a military sealift command possibility. So they wanted those ships to be manned by U.S. citizens, and they wanted those ships particularly um, if they are going to be going between U.S. ports and U.S. ports to be built in the United States. Now, we just so happen to have a whole slew of ships with nothing to do, still sitting on the rails, halfway built at the conclusion of World War One. So as you can see, this 1920 Act had two elements, and the two elements have absolutely nothing to do with one another except for the fact that politics is politics and you need labor to come along. So they, on the labor side, secured the jury trial, which is not always available in Admiralty, it generally is not as well as the ability to sue their employer. So that is the very short version, believe it or not, of the Jones Act 1920 law. There is much more to be said. However, I think historically, if we want to take that approach, 1927 rolls around pretty quickly. And before I hand it over to Mike to talk about what happens in 1927 with the Longshoremen, I will say that you will note in the Jones Act as well, they have this sort of random statement. Anything that is available to the railroad workers, which is now FELA, um, subsequently recodified, but then just railroad workers, is available to seamen. Well, why in the world would you do that? And the reason is, is because that was one of the few places that had some sort of workers' compensation scheme at the time. So don't reinvent the wheel. Just tack on to the end of the statute, and anything that is available to the railway workers is also available to the seamen. 
So with that in mind, um, unless you have a question, I think 1927, historically, as we roll through this, rolls right into Mike's next uh, area to cover. That's right. So Wait, let me just let me just see if I can recap briefly, just to be as I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take the position of the layperson here. Um, so if I understand it correctly, the Jones Act basically gave seamen at sea or in American ports around the world, uh, or while they were on ship, injury rights or rights against their employers or coworkers or negligence. Uh, the issue about the ships on, on the line, I, I think we'll probably get back to that. Um, but I imagine that there's something to do with the, with the ship builders and ship workers as well. And the Longshoremen's Act, as I understand it, has to do with the labor on the port side of things. The, the folks that now would be operating the giant cranes and the lifts and the, and the crates. And well, as the word longshoremen, the dollies and everybody looking like Bruno Sammartino and everyone who was, you saw in season two of The Wire and uh, things like that. And I'm, I'm sure there's union involvement, too. And uh, of course, now this railroad thing, you know, that that I'm going to add to my little mental list along with, this, with the, the Teamsters if I need to be, be looking at that as well. Uh, I, I thought you were going to get into, we're going to lead into when you're talking about all these ships and they want U.S. to, to, to serve it, that led to the Merchant Marine, but we, we can certainly put a pin in that one. So is that sort of a thumbnail of, of, of what we've got? We've got laws protecting seamen on the ships, wherever they are, if they're on American ships, uh, and protection for workers that are working on or around the, the ports in the maritime industry. That essentially boils it down in a nutshell. And, um, I think Mike's going to tell you how how that second part of protection for those that are shoreside came about in 27. Well, oh, so, it's it's Mark. So it's okay. <laughs> I, I, I Mark and I said Mike. I'm so sorry. Right. So, I wouldn't correct you except there was three times, so I didn't want the audience to be confused and think there was another person here. My apologies. I'll have to make a big note here and stick it on. You my can't head. mistake my East Baltimore accent. There's only one of those. <laughs> so, but Jeff, think think of on the waterfront. Marlon Brando? Does that not ring a bell for you? Sure, but you know what? To be honest, I get all those Tennessee Williams type things confused. The the Stella, the Glass Menagerie, the On the Waterfront. All of it to me blends. He could have been somebody. He could have. But in 1927, and it's a New York, uh, sort of it rises from a New York incident where a workman who was on a ship that was docked in New York was killed. And his widow tried to obtain benefits through the, the New York State Workers' Compensation System as well, right? So each state in the United States has their own workers' compensation laws that are the state laws covering the state workers. What happened for this widow and for the guy that was killed in, in, on the ship was it was found by the, the New York Supreme Court that it, it didn't um, – that the, the worker wasn't covered by the New York State Workers' Compensation laws. So – here is somebody who's the widow's out, you know, now collecting social services or out, you know, homeless or whatever. So the, the Congress figured there's got to be some protections to fill this void for, for people that are not covered by state workers' compensation laws or the Jones Act. There's this sort of like this no man's land of people who are unloading the ships. I don't know to what extent they had cranes. I guess they had something like that, then, but it was a lot of bulwark being done. So you can imagine how many people were being injured. 
and it's a no it's a no fault system. So you know, we're talking about the concepts of negligence and you know suing suing for negligence and, and who's at fault and all, all those things. I mean, there are things certainly that may preclude you from pursuing a claim, but as a longshoreman, um, you're covered sort of regardless of whether you're, you know maybe you're not paying close enough attention and something you trip over something and you're injured versus you know, the employer causing some sort of hazard and injuring you. Uh, but it, it all arose out of this case from New York. And in 1927, the U.S. Congress passed the Longshore Act. Or I think two parts to it, two, two separate sections passed in 1927. But, with, you know, with some modifications and there was a recodification, um, you know, many years later, it's essentially been the same. Um, and it provides for very specific remedies when someone's injured uh, you know, for your lost time for medical expenses. And if there is a, a um, permanent injury, there's potential to, to you know, receive benefits for that, as well as if there's loss of earning capacity that extends long into the future, it, it could cover a person for that too. So you know, some of these claims, um, if a person has serious injuries and can't go back to work on the waterfront, yeah, we're talking uh, you know, a million dollars of benefits that may, may be uh, forthcoming for that person, obviously, uh, only the most severe injuries. And a lot of times these folks are like the biggest earners. Like, you know, here locally, when I hear about a longshoreman coming in and they're making like $150,000 a year, it's really kind of remarkable. I and mean, that's, that's um, with, a, with a, you know, not having a great education necessarily, these people are able to earn a lot of money. Um, so the benefits sort of match what they earn, right? They're sort of uh, they're entitled to certain money based upon what they earn. Right. So that's a big money case, especially if the uh, injury is severe or permanent. Um, but I, this is just a, an aside, and I am, and I think that probably this is universal, at least well, or at least national that. These industries are heavily unionized and most of the world is not. And most of, and by the world, I mean, even American labor and markets are generally not nearly as unionized as people think. But these are, I'm sure there's some union involvement, but for, for the purposes of these discussions, I am presuming, and you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that whether you are, are or are not in a union has nothing to do with benefits under these acts. Correct. Like you, you can, I mean, Obviously, as you point out, most of the longshore workers are members of a union, but you certainly can be. Um, and you know, the union is going to get mad sometimes about who's maybe working on the dock and whether they're a union member or not. But yeah, you're entitled to um, to benefits even if you're not a union member. So it's it's not that's not a uh, prerequisite to making a making a successful claim essentially. Were unions involved in negotiating these these laws at all, or did, with the, I mean, if I if my memory serves, unions sort of got popular around the '30s and '40s, uh, and this sounds like they predated that. To a large extent, with respect to the Jones Act, yes. Um, however, I do want to point out something with the Jones Act and the question you just asked about ask about unions. Um, any Jones Act claim, when brought, is typically a three part claim. One is Jones Act negligence. Two is maintenance and cure, which is a place to live and all my medical bills. 
And then three is unseaworthiness of the vessel, all of which have a lot of ramification for your space law concept that we were here initially to start discussing. But there's also a ramification for the maintenance and cure and whether or not it's a union job. Maintenance and cure can be a large number or a very small number. You can imagine the medical bills portion of that, the cure. But the maintenance portion, if a union is involved, is only about $8 a day to live on. Wow. Because that's one of the things that typically a union will, you know, not push that ball very far and will let that one go as a low number so that they can get a higher hourly wage or whatever the circumstance may be. So in a non-union scenario, you may actually find that the maintenance number is a little higher um, than in a union scenario. So with that being said, though, as you can see, I'm bringing it back to your space law concept for a moment. Our space law concept. Right. <laughs> we have these, uh, we've talked about essentially a set of workers which are related to, you know, maybe at a port or something of that nature, a spaceport or otherwise, which would be similar to the Longshoreman Harbor Workers' Compensation Act. But then you also have those who would be aboard. That's where it becomes more interesting, and you would have the same issues there that you have with Jones Act, which is who is a Jones Act seaman? It has been litigated. It's been up to the Supreme Court at least four or five times now uh, recently. Um, the most recent large test coming out uh, in 1995, and then there was a smaller add-on test. Um, and actually just a few, I think less than a year ago, we have yet another case that came out trying to describe who is a Jones Act seaman. Because for many, many years, a cocktail waitress on a vessel that happens to be docked on the Mississippi River, but has pilings outboard so that it can never actually get underway, is a Jones Act seaman. Okay. So are they, you know, the definition becomes very, very, very important. And just to give you some background, because this is really something um, that goes and interplays between both the Longshoreman Act and as well as the uh, Jones Act is that the longshoremen, you know, you don't get that part if you're a member of a crew. So what's the member of a crew? I'm going to just give you a brief sentence here. This boils it all down. Ready? Two, two prong inquiry here in the Chandris versus Latsis case, 95. The worker's duties must contribute to the function of the vessel or to the accomplishment of its mission. And the worker must have a connection to a vessel in navigation or an identifiable group of vessels under common ownership and control, which is substantial in terms of both its duration and nature. So that's the basic test. And that's the exact same basic test that you're going to find going on as you move into your space law concept. It, there are a few more details to add to it um, because there was a Popeye case after that one. Um, and then, of course, we have a recent Fifth Circuit case, which gets even deeper into what is substantial duration in nature. Um, but the idea is to start moving away from the cook um, who is on a, a gaming boat that has never actually left the shore side in 20 years. So the cook, 
the cook is not covered under the Jones Act in your permanently docked casino uh, riverboat example, but the cook on a Carnival cruise ship is. Well, I can't even say that it's not actually because the law is not that clear anymore, but the argument is that they should not be because they never go to sea under the Popeye case. Having said that, you're correct that one who is exposed to the perils of the sea, um, common ownership and control, all of those things are the things that will bring you around to a spot where you have a Jones Act seaman. And I'll even, I'll give you here, just happened to attend an event that uh, the judge himself discussed this, but from the Fifth Circuit, three more questions were just recently added, at least in that circuit. Does the worker have an allegiance to the vessel rather than simply a shore side, is he a shoreside employee? Two, is the work sea-based or involves seagoing activity? And three, is the worker's assignment to a vessel limited to the performance of a distinct task after which the worker's connection to the vessel ends, or is the assignment include sailing from port to port, location to location? So even, even now, a hundred years later, we're still having cases come out just trying to define who actually gets to use the Jones Act. And you're going to have the same scenario as you're looking at the space travel side of things. Sure. I mean, as, as these ships get more diverse. Okay. Before I get back to Mark, because I definitely want to, I have one question for you. Does it, it, it does country flag of registration impact the Jones Act? So can someone get out of this entirely if the ship is flagged to Panama? Or any place, any place that's not the U.S. One of the reasons that you have so little tonnage these days that is U.S. flag is because you don't want to have to have the laws of the United States applying when, to be blunt about it, there's a huge number of Filipinos that go to sea and are on Liberian flagships or Panamanian flagships. And it's cheaper to not have U.S. laws applying to those persons when you have a port state control, you know, the flag of the state applying. Now, having said that, once they, um, once they're here in the United States, there's no shortage, particularly if you go down a Louisiana, uh, highway of, uh, billboards trying to get as many seamen as possible to walk into the door of the local plaintiff's council to file, um, in Louisiana state, which tends to be very, uh, plaintiff friendly to the Jones Act seaman. So I don't want to monopolize the time. Perhaps, uh, Mark, you have some thoughts on these topics. Well, the one, the one thing that grabbed my attention was thinking about like the restaurant worker or the cook. So, uh, under the Longshore Act, there are certain jobs that are specifically excluded. So you're, if you're in a certain occupation, you're not covered by the Longshore Act. So that includes, um, Certain office workers, if you're just doing like, like it, you know, you're set up in the, uh, in the office at the marine terminal and you're just doing paperwork all day, you're not going to be considered a longshore or a longshore person. And the same goes if you're, um, exclusively involved in like a recreational, uh, type of operation or in a restaurant. So if you're a restaurant worker that just happens to be, you know, on the, right there at the marine terminal, you're not going to be considered a longshore. And I think those people then, uh, would fall under the state, whatever state workers' compensation laws there are. It's obviously not going to be covered under the Jones Act, and 
not going to be covered on the Longshore Act, but there's got to be something that's going to provide some protection for them if they if they get injured. Um, it's kind of an interesting thing where you, you know, you're you're having I'm imagining all these different cases that are that are pending either under the Jones Act or the Longshore Act, as I mentioned earlier, where it's a very fact specific thing, and each one you got to look very closely at each of the little elements that may make up whether the person qualifies or not. And I can imagine decisions being all over the place as far as whether, you know, the person who maybe works in the restaurant most of the time, but then also does some other activities is, is covered under the Longshore Act. So it's, it's, I think it's a case-by-case basis that you have to look at it. Yeah, this is, you know, what, what coverage is going to be available to them. This is one of the interesting things to me, because I, I think that in, I'm, I'm sure there's other examples, but ports, especially those that have both commercial and tourist areas like Baltimore does. We, we have cruise ships to leave to come in and out of Baltimore um, and airports, especially international airports, but airports and ports generally are some sort of public private partnership, but, but we pretend that they're private. They're, they lease space to restaurants. They lease space to vendors. Some of the people that, that Mark, you're saying would, would not be covered. Um, and then the employees are employees of the ports themselves but they're on quasi-federal enclaves, or in the case of the international uh, terminals, they're on inter- they're on federal properties. But then there's the federal aspect where you have law enforcement, whether it's Customs and Immigration or Department of Homeland Security or, or you know any federal protective service, whatever that are there, and some communications, some coordination between in airports, the FAA and the air traffic controllers and the airport administrator, and I assume in ports, there's similar. I, I, are they called pilots? Is is, is that what the, the people that sort of control the traffic with, with ships? Not necessarily. There is a pilot, which is aboard a vessel. Okay. And that is a local pilot, which is taken out, and he goes up the side of the ship and is on board to assist the master of that vessel. Oh, it's the harbor master. I'm sorry. The harbor master is like the air traffic controller equivalent. Is but that correct? There, there are vessel traffic separation schemes, and there is a means to do what you're referring to. But the word pilot has a certain specific right. connotation. I just wanted to confirm that, you know, for you and all of the listeners, that a pilot is actually one of those people that doesn't quite fall into any of those categories that you're describing. Oh, really? Right? They're, they're on the so, ship, right? Well, they're on the ship, but they're not the member of a crew. They're local. And then a ship calls and gets pilot services. And then the pilot goes out, goes up the side of the ship, brings it to where it needs to go, and gets off the ship. So what happens when the pilot is injured? And that's where the interplay comes back. Um, Everybody in the U.S. justice system, and I'm putting some politics in there, always gets their share, right? Well, what happens if we have somebody who's not covered by either longshoreman, and he's, he's actually not a member of a crew, therefore not Jones Act? Well, that's where the Siraki cement comes to bear, which then gets – it's a little bit of a carve-out. It's other maritime workers, and the Siraki seamen first came up in 1946, but there was some codification in the Longshoremen Harbor Workers Act in 1972. So it essentially covers someone like that pilot that we were referring to. Um, and I know that wasn't the point of where you were going. You were looking more on the air traffic control side, but 
bringing it back to the labor portion of this, you can see in the space concept, you're going to have the same sort of thing, right? Someone who is not actually assigned to a particular ship isn't going um, you know, distances, but may be coming aboard to deal with how to dock in a particular location or a spaceport. Right. So Captain Kirk is not is not docking the Enterprise in you know space station whatever they call them there. Instead, someone from Space Station Alpha ferries out there and takes over the controls temporarily just to effect that safe uh, parking. Uh, basically, they they ace their parallel parking test in space. So, so yeah, that, that that that's interesting. I don't know if that'll happen in space or not, but like you said, but. Politics are not going to play any less a role in space, if, if anything, perhaps more, because there's chances are going to be multiple countries involved because cost sharing is the game, which is sort of why we may all be looking, you know, at Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, and they're all going to be looking at us in their rearview mirror. And and that, that that's why I, I think before we get to all of this, we're going to have the British East India Company or Hudson Bay Company again, and uh, you know somehow Marines will be given them. So, Mark, I know that you were starting on on um, part of thought. Does anything tie in here? That uh, well, the one thing that, I, that caught my attention was the, the idea of the government of different governments being involved. So it brings to mind the Defense Base Act, which um, essentially covers with a a uh, compensation scheme or system of st- or a statutory system that's nearly identical as far as the benefits as to what the Longshore uh, statute provides, but it covers overseas government contracts. So let's say you're you know, you're not a government employee, but you're working for some big government contractor. And you're sent you're sent to Iraq and you're doing government work, but you're, you're Halliburton. Doing, Just say Halliburton. Yeah, Halliburton. So, <laughs> so you're working for Halliburton. Um, but you're over there, and um, you know. Once I, I'm thinking of it from an active plan floor, so I'm, sure. I'm always thinking this is a case work when, when I, you know, when it comes to the door. But much like Longshore, I mean, these guys are making astronomical amounts of money because you know they're away from their family, they're you know, out there for six months. But there's an injury, or there's an exposure to um, a burn pit, or whatever that you know, whatever might be causing their injury, and they're entitled to certain compensation that essentially mirrors or is nearly identical to what the Longshore statute provides. But you're thinking of it in terms of being out in space. I can imagine there are going to be, like you say, these private companies, but the government is contracting with them to provide certain services out out beyond. And there, there's going to be, to me, it would be a Defense Base Act case that would arise out of, out of an injury that would maybe be caused by that situation. Yeah, and that, and that sounds... Like a parallel to the Soraki case, which, by the way, is a great name for a space show because it sounds like a space race. I know these are a lot of Greek names, and that's probably not an accent either because here in Baltimore, it's, you know, Greek town is right there as well. Um, and, of course, I'm everything that influences me is season two of The Wire on, on this. That's my, my greatest source, my reference source here. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that that's right. And, and what I'm relieved to hear um, is that there's so much parallel that a lot of these laws of the sea and laws related to seamen and, and workers of the sea basically 
they took that and they copied that for other similar situations instead of creating these entirely different um, uh, frameworks. Now, I understand there may be different administrative courts or, or, you know, routes, but they're basically similar. It sounds like they were built upon, or at least partly, upon the railroad uh, laws beforehand. So, you know, I guess modern transportation is really about 200 years old. So this, this, this is all in, in body of law, this is all new stuff. So my guess is that, that we're all right, that they're not going to keep reinventing the wheel. They're just going to borrow from it and probably make sure to get the worst of all and probably leave out the best of all. Well, and that's something to keep in mind is that um, David Farrell, who is the current president of the Maritime Law Association, presented a paper at the Tulane Admiralty Law Institute a couple of weeks ago. And that paper, part of the thesis, asserts that the cabotage portions of the Jones Act and the traditional negligence portion, you can sue your employer, have actually been counterproductive to one another in the long run, so that we now, as a United States, have very little of the ship's tonnage, and the world's tonnage, rather, I should say, and the ability to move materials without going to the private sector. And, you know, we have military sea lift command, but that's, of course, all subsidized in part one way or another um, in order to be able to move things around. So what I would, in your space concept, let's think this through for a moment. If you uh, were to repeat the, the arguable mistakes of the past, you would say, okay, we have a U.S. base on the far side of the moon, and only a U.S.-built spaceship may travel to that particular place, whether it is by you know, a, a multinational group, which is, you know, look at the politics here. Oh, so what we're going to do, we're going to have a multinational group, but everybody needs a little piece of the pie. Right. So you'll get to build in these four or five countries, and those four or five countries are the ones that are going to have the, you know, national flag flying on the various bases. So in that context, you can see how certainly you could suddenly make a scenario being protectionist where you're no longer able to have a full supply of the vessels actually required because how many can be built in one particular country at a, at a particular time? Right. And then the other thing, uh, and I'm going to give us a stand-in bad guy state because we used it last time, Todd, and that's Jeff Zikistan. And in Jeff Zikistan, uh, we have, we, in, we give absolute immunity for people who launch spaceships out of our out of our country, out of our docks and our ports, and Jeff and Jeff Zikistan, we also workers have no rights. There's no Jones Act. There's no Longshoremen's Act. There's there's no equivalence. There's no uh, State Port Workers Act. So everyone can flag their ship under Jeff Jeff Zikistan, no matter where the ships are built, where where they you know. But they if they flag it in Jeff Zikistan, just for our very reasonable licensing fees, they have absolutely no liability, and the workers have no rights. And then you know that's employers get the workers, however they get the workers. But I mean that's sort of what happens. Because I don't I don't know what the laws are in Panama, or Liberia, or the Bahamas, or whatever. And I and I doubt that any of these countries are complete monsters, but my guess are that they don't have the same level of rights for the little person as they do for, say, the Carnival Cruise Line or, you know, or, or Maersk. 
Well, that's certainly true. You have the least number of protections in the United States for the Jones, for the, well, excuse me, let me back up. We have the most protective scenario with respect to which vessels comply between U.S. ports and U.S. ports. We also have the most protective scenario when you talk about the injury recovery scheme for a Jones Act seaman of anywhere else. And so that is part of the reason that arguably we have so few Jones Act seamen in the first place is because they have so much more protection than um, the other countries. So you're exactly on spot. You can see how quickly we could very readily repeat mistakes of the past. Easily. Uh, Now, from Mark's perspective, at least on Earth in the United States, it's different because the longshoremen, the docks are the docks, the, the workspace is the workspace. That's that's here. So those folks are covered. So that you know that that and that may or may not exist if it is a US base in space. Let's let's presume it probably would at, at some point. But if it's an international space station or an international, you know, who knows? Or if we only have so many, but let's say the Chinese build one on Europa and the Russians build one on Mars, red planet, or, you know, uh, though it doesn't, uh, I don't, given what we're seeing these days, I, I'm not sure I'd go to a Russian space base. Um, uh, you know, whoever, you know, the, you have different ones and different laws uh, might apply to those those countries own it. Or you could easily see a case where a country that doesn't have the technology but has the money. So, you know, a Saudi-led coalition or the United Arab Emirates owns a space station, but it was completely built elsewhere. Ultimately, I think the, um, the laws in the U.S. will be a little bit behind the technology. So what will happen will be people will be getting hurt in space and and it will be figured out that they're not being covered by any of these other statutory schemes that are available. And so we'll be behind the time, but there'll be something then passed that will, whether, you know, whatever the name of it will be, and it will probably in some ways mirror one or, or more of the existing acts to cover those people. But it will be like after somebody gets hurt and after sure. there's some outcry about it, and then, then it will happen. Right. After, after alien occurs or the first person, you know, uh, gets their, their air tie cut and then gets spaced, uh, can't be recovered. Uh, like, uh, I, I get it. I, I definitely agree. We have said that many times. The, the, the laws will follow the disasters. They always do because nobody has the foresight or the, or the, the, the strength of character to will uh, to, in, until after something bad happens and they have to answer for it. Um, Okay, so Longshoreman's Act is like a workers' compensation scheme for people who work in and about the harbors in a direct service to the shipping industry, not ancillaries like a, a retail shop or, 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 you know, a subway franchise or whatever. That wouldn't be covered. I guess taxis that come back and forth uh, picking up people from the cruise ships, they wouldn't be covered either. Or would they? If you're just driving a truck, if you're just uh, driving a truck in, picking up a container and rock, rock, riding out, you're not going to be considered a longshore person either. So, as I get, as I said a couple times, and at the risk of repeating myself, it's there. There are different attempts because there are certain advantages to the longshore system that far exceed the, the uh, benefits that would be in the state system. So, if you've got a case that may be a close call as to whether it's a state claim or a longshore claim, depending upon how bad the injury is, what 
with the benefits are available, you may be litigating that issue as with whether somebody's covered or not, and it leads to all this law that crops up about, well, is the person a longshoreman or are they just simply going to be covered by the state act? We have, I'll get cases where a lawyer will have filed a state claim for someone, and then the person, then the insurance company said, no, this is not a state claim, it's a longshore claim, and then the lawyer doesn't know how to handle it, so it will come to me, and we'll end up dismissing the state claim and then filing a longshore claim. Um, but you know, there's some that it's, you know, it's arguable. Maybe they're, they're either, or they're, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're both, but you, you hopefully get to choose the one that's the most lucrative for the person that we're, I'm representing in this case, obviously the injured person. Mark, let me ask you a question, but it's going to be uh, started with a statement. And I, I'm going to assume safely that the people who work for customs enforcement, immigration, they're not longshoremen. They're, they're, they're federal law enforcement. Um, and they they work for the federal government. What about like I, I'm sure that there's private security guards though. You know that work the you know they're, they're they work for the port. Maybe they're special police officers or just you know Pinkerton, whatever. You know lo- local armored car guys that are there. Are they considered covered under the Longshoremen's Act or no? No, but but you brought up an interesting point, which I think is worth mentioning as well. Because we we talked about all these different coverages that are available. I'm thinking within the last um, two weeks, I've had two people call me that are employed by the U.S. Coast Guard. Um, and so that's a whole other uh, scheme where you're a federal employee. Uh, even though you're you're on in the Coast Guard, you're on the water, you're basically under the same coverage that like a, a postal worker would have. Um, you're talking more about the private security versus maybe uh, a federal employee, but it's still worth mentioning the federal employee stuff too because as you see, this, the, the way the scheme is set up is to avoid a person not having any coverage at all. Like, that's the whole point. It's like to make sure that there's, whether it's the railroad, whether it's Longshore, whether it's Jones Act, whether it's a federal scheme of coverage, you want to make sure that there's coverage available to everybody. And it just may, depending upon what the status of the person is and where they're working and what kind of work they're doing, it will change. But to answer your question directly, the the guy who's like sitting at the gate, just like checking the Twit card when they come into port. Nah, that's not going to be something that's going to be covered. I don't think. Mark, we're we're both old enough, and, and Todd probably is as well, to remember when the Coast Guard was a branch of the military, and now they're under Department of Homeland Security. Was the did the Coast Guard get short shrift when it was moved into a more civil uh, uh, branch than the armed forces, or did it is that an upgrade? Uh, in injury compensation, or is it exactly the same scheme? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. I, to me, I don't know. I don't have any idea what what coverage there is, if any, available to like someone in the armed forces, which is a whole other. You know, but I'm sure there's something. But it's it's obviously the veterans. Yeah, there's veterans compensation for disability and all that. Um, we we've talked about these various forms of uh, of making a claim and, and the different protections that you have. I would caution, and there's like a word of caution in all this, which is from from a practical point of view, from handling these, these claims on a daily, daily basis, particularly the like the Coast Guard. I don't, I don't even take those cases because they're so difficult to manage from a bureaucratic point of view. Like getting in touch with somebody and getting something done and having a remedy as far as going to court is all very frustrating. It's it's almost it feels like almost impossible. Now the Longshore has sort of a department of uh, department of um, labor essentially handles those claims 
there's a there's a more organized system, and there's certain levels of court that you go to. But it's it's not easy, and and the remedies are long and coming. So like you can have a claim, and if there's a, a dispute, you may not get a result for two years. And so we're talking about these things in theory and how they could provide protection and all this, but in reality, it's not that way. It's not it's not that. Um, it's not every case where you have these disputes that take forever to resolve. Uh, and for the, for the very clear-cut cases, it's not that way. You get benefits started, and, and things go along fairly smoothly. But where there's maybe a dispute about, you know, are they covered or not? Or was there really an injury? They, they drag on and on and on. And it's uh, it's of no benefit to the person who's injured because you may go two years with no life. You'd be like the traveling judges in the old West. You'll have uh, space uh, space marshals or space judges or magistrates traveling from port to port themselves. Um, I had one other question for, I mean, probably for either of you, but I think it's more for Mark. And I don't know, this may be another one where you don't know the answer and that's perfectly fair. But who's in charge of the port? Is it is it the federal government? Is it the, the private port administrator? Does it depend what the situation is? Like if a crane falls down, I imagine that's more civil, but it falls down on the customs thing, then, <laughs> I mean, who, who, who's the, who's the, who does the buck stop with? Or is that sometimes one of those Spider-Man memes where six people are pointing at each other? Well, Ty could jump in, but I, my understanding is it's the Port Authority. And, okay. Uh, or the, like, what's the correct name for I'm thinking of the, the New York Port Authority, but what's the, Ty, what's the Maryland version of that? It, there is a Maryland Port Authority as well, but yeah. everybody has their bureaucratic system. Uh, I do want to, if I could, I know we're running short on time. There's something I really we want to throw We have no time limit. Just because the other one was an hour doesn't mean this one has to be, so don't worry. Well, I, there's something I want to throw out there and take you in a slightly different direction. First, I agree 100% with Mark that the Defense Base Act, which incorporates the LHWCA, so brings in the Longshoremen Harbor Workers' Compensation Act for those personnel who are on military bases, private contractors, would be great, but we've already sort of established that it's private industry right now that's leading the way, putting Captain Kirk in space that was not government. Right, he's so, a privateer. Correct. And so private citizen going. So one, one of the things that I suggest could be a workaround is that a lot of labor interests in particular do not like arbitration provisions, but you don't have the force of law com compelling the Longshoremen Act in play because the, the Defense Base Act comes to bear. If you have private interests that are actually the ones pressing forward, but you could very easily in one very simple paragraph draft an arbitration provision into the employment agreement of any of those astronauts or otherwise, which would say, you know, we are effectively going to be employing a private Longshoreman Harbor Workers Compensation Act using the rules set up, I don't know what you want to call it, the Space Arbitration Commission, private organization, much like the Society of Maritime Arbitrators are a private organization. Mm -hmm. You have rules, you have arbitrators, and you have a set of rules with some consistency. And Mark can discuss this better than I, but, you know, there's a value to a, a lost arm. <laughs> there's a value to a lost leg. And guys like Mark 
can say, you got about X value here. Um, And now we probably with the, you know, salaries we're talking about of these people probably want some caps to make sure that we're not just having it be salary based only what, what they get in return for loss of their life or something like that. But I'll leave that to Mark if he has any other comments on potentially essentially co-opting the Longshoremen Harbor Workers Compensation Act, which already does a lot of this, into a private arbitration agreement. Yeah, that wouldn't be bad at all as long as there's a, an effective way of, of managing the claims. Like that's That seems to be the, the, uh, the issue that I run into most frequently is just like it's it's just becomes uh, too many hurdles to jump over or too many things that are blocking the way to get it done in, in an efficient way. Um, so as long as it's efficient, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like that's the that would be the goal of it would be to stream, to streamline things um, in a way and, and have it um, done sooner than later. Uh, just to follow up on Todd's point about the compensation rates and sort of determining. Um, the value of a case. It's very true. Like an arm is worth a certain amount of weeks and it's worth a certain amount of money. And in the longshore harbor workers, there, there are caps uh, as far as like, you know, I have clients that are down there making three, $4,000 a week, but then when they get, when they're missing time, they, they're only getting a certain amount and it, it goes up each year depending upon inflation and things like that. But it's substantially less than you get if you're just getting your full wage repaid. It's the only benefit. And I, I'm the practical guy maybe here as far as like what I see, but it's tax free. So when you, when you get your longshore harbor workers money, there are no taxes taken out of it. Well, it's also, I guess, the only benefit of the high inflation that we're seeing right now. Yeah, it's the, both in the state and, and in the federal uh, systems, you get the higher caps. It's, it's fine because everyone's talking about the f- efficient enforcement. It sounds like it's hard to in- efficiently enforce things right here in in our semi little state and our, and our you know moderate sized city. Um, imagine when these things are hundreds of thousands or millions of miles away or further. Um, so it's really going to have to be a coalition of, of the willing. So I want to turn to something. I, I desperately want to talk about pirates, but I'm not going to. But I, but we are going to talk to, to their their legalized cousins, the privateers, because obviously governments are not going to be able to enforce all of this themselves. So they will turn to mercenaries, space mercenaries. So when Sylvester Stallone and Michael Rooker and the Ravagers come around to, to be to do the salvage and, and be the space pirates and call upon I don't know, uh, you know, whatever the, the privateers who, who, you know, to chase them away or, or, you know, go after and, you know, I'm sure there'll be similar laws of salvage as there are at the sea, probably more generous in the beginning, get less generous as more, uh, uh, you know, government based destroyers get out there. But what, what do you, do you, do you think that the privateers will be covered under one of these? I mean, obviously it wouldn't be the Longshoremen's Act. Um, though they might encounter longshoremen on ports or whatever you'd call the, the space dock worker or whatever. Um, but would they be covered under the Jones Act as a, as a seaman afar, or would it be more of the defense base because it's, it's a defense thing or because it's public private or maybe, maybe private? Is it just a, a, a contract or could it be a, 
What, what do you think it's going to be? I, I know that it can be any of those things depending on what happens, but what, what, what do you think it would be for our, our friends, the privateers? Well, I, I want to begin by making sure that we're talking apples and apples and not apples and oranges, because a privateer is not someone who does salvage. A salvor is a very distinct group of people or person. Um, who is encouraged to be prepared to help vessels and people in distress. And whether that is land-based or space-based, you just notice I'm, I'm being, you know, um, I'm using language that can go for both directions, space or land. So what you're doing is you have a whole set of law out there, the black law factors, where you go, okay, we're going to give an award. This vessel, and I can't do math very well, so we're going to make it a nice small number that's reasonable for me to figure out. Mark's a plaintiff's attorney. He can do math great. $100 million just to make it a small number, okay, Mm -hmm. Um, for a spaceship, of course. But call it $100 million. Post-casualty, that ship is only worth $50 million. Now I've got a number that doesn't divide easily, so I'm in real trouble. Um, Having said that, you want to reward the person who goes and saves a salvor based upon the typical factors. How much did they put their own life at risk and the lives of their people? What is the value of the infrastructure that they had to put in place in order to make that salvage happen? Um, what is the value of the ship that they used? How many ships did they use? What, was there particular equipment? You know, I, I'm going to geek out for a moment, but is there a tractor beam that t- took a whole lot of R&D and cost a gazillion dollars, right? Um, so if they use something like that as opposed to, you know, a tow line from Home Depot. Right. Well, now you have to say space winch because it sounds like space winch. Right. You know, that's a whole other discussion. That's, Come on, that's Miller laugh. That was funny. Cast is over. <laughs> um, so the point is, is that you you're really looking at somewhere usually between seven and fourteen percent of the post casualty value, and that's going to carry through. But that's distinct from the other side that you just used, which is privateer. Ironically, with our current situation, we've actually with the Russian Ukraine scenario, we've heard some people for the first time start to bring up this. Well, how about if we bring some privateers? Um, if our governments aren't going to do it for whatever political reasons, why can't we just as individuals get a stamp of approval? And that's called a letter of mark. It is officially the ability on behalf of a government. So the Ukrainians could, for example, theoretically, using the existing rubric of how we've been doing it, issue a letter to a ship which then on behalf of the Ukrainian government can go out and attack the Russian ship. So the privateer is different than the salvor. Um, it could be. It could be one and the same depending on the ship's equipment, but you're right. In, in, in our current law of the sea, that is correct. And in the law of space, maybe it will be too. Um, maybe they'll be diverse. I, I'm, I'm presuming that in the beginning, the technology will be such that you try to make one ship as useful as possible. But, but I think that's a good distinction. Um, so our private, so let's just, so let's go with our privateers, private security, private police force, uh, you know, but, but 
hired by, obviously, if they're hired, if they're like the security guard at the port, they're hired by a private company, they'd be covered under some type of interstellar workers' comp or some sort of company workers' comp uh, provision. But if they are hired by Ukraine or the U.S. or Jeff Zikistan, um, would it, would the, do you foresee sort of a Jones Act Sakari uh, situation or uh, what was it, the Defense Base Act? I will say that on the private side, that would be more inclined towards the Jones Act side, although there are some civilian offshoots for that Longshore Harbor Workers' Compensation Act. It's only, it's really very, very narrow. That's the Non-Appropriated Instrumentalities Act, covering civilian employees who perform their duties in like commissaries and stuff like that at U.S. bases and its territories. So it's very similar to the Defense Base Act, but it sort of brings in those those persons that aren't covered by the Defense Base Act. But I, you know, I'm not my area, so I'll defer to Mark on his thoughts on that. No, that's right. I mean, it's, as we've talked about, there are these little exceptions that, that people fall into, and then when they figure out, geez, these people aren't covered under anything, you've got to come up with something. So, so yeah, I've represented uh, a lady who worked um, at a commissary at Carpal Tunnel, whatever, you know, it's like... Uh, and, and oddly enough, because of it, the, the benefits um, track along with like the Longshore Harbor Workers and the Defense Base Act, I think the last offer on the case was like one hundred fifty thousand dollars for for a carpal tunnel case. Uh, it's 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 a very uh, it's it's a very strange system where you see like different systems have different benefits available to the various workers. Guys, is, is this why we don't see restaurants and tons of retail stores in the international terminals? You have to go through customs and immigration before you before you get to all that stuff, except for maybe like a duty-free shop. And I, I imagine a duty-free shop is somehow operates in its own little uh, international casino zone of, 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 of coolness. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't even know if I, I, I'm like now like amazingly interested in, in what happens to employees of the duty-free shop if they slip and fall or, or all the liquor from around the world falls on their head, um, how they get compensated. But I mean, I, I guess that's one of the reasons. I guess the other is just plain old security is that you have to go in and out of immigration and customs every time. I mean, technically you're leaving the country and that, uh, and if you start passing out those, uh, you know, those clear or fast passes, that, that that's a maybe a security hazard that isn't worth it to you know open up a you know a, a McDonald's and a Starbucks. Though Starbucks belongs in space, does it not? <laughs> There's one on every other corner. Might as well, right? Right. Absolutely. There should be a Starbucks on every ring in Saturn uh, around Saturn. So I don't know. This is. I mean, if this show le- leaves. Nothing else to the listener. It should should let you know that the world is very complicated, and even things that don't seem so complicated are extremely com- com- complicated with lots of moving parts. Um, so, I mean, that sort of puts a giant torpedo hole, uh, pun intended, into most conspiracy theories because there's just too many different moving parts with even the most simple of operations. Um, but that aside, I. Is there anything that, that you think that I missed that, that, that either one of you wanted to add to? I'll start with Mark first. No, nah, not really. I, I'm, I'm excited to see what ends up happening. And from from my perspective, as, I, as I've repeated over and over, 
maybe I can find a way to make money at it by, yeah. ha- by having, uh, you know, a practice devoted to those kinds of claims. Well, maybe the, the process will be easy and I'll make the money for the client and myself without a lot of effort. Well, maybe I'll be a space magistrate, and I imagine space corruption is harder to r- r- roll in than than, than Earth based corruption. And uh, f- finally, I, I can I can cash in on on my lack of a moral center. Um, t- Todd, is there anything that you think that we should cover that we have not vis a vis? Oh, we've covered a great deal, and I'm uh, I think if there's one takeaway I would like to underscore, which is that we don't have to reinvent the wheel when we have all of these existing systems, but let's try not to make the same mistakes with the existing systems. Take the good rather than the bad, which seems to be very difficult for humans to do. Um, And also don't rely on government. Again, my politics coming to bear because you'll get a slow system. See, I'm guaranteed to offend. I've just offended somebody over at the department of labor right now. Um, Oh, they're listening. You know that. (laughs) <laughs> even before we've made air they're listening so use the private sector create a system that works and has some economic benefit and that's how we all get along faster better and a smoother system with economic benefits rather than waiting for big brother the government to do it for us there we go there's my libertarian statement of the evening very nice. Well, for those of you who are Garden of Doom listeners who have accidentally stumbled upon this, I'll give you a little bit of overlap here. We're going to try not to be like Ezekiel's vision. We're not going to have wheels within wheels within wheels. We're not going to have a floating Merkaba. We want to take all the existing wheels that we have and we want to make one wheel. One wheel here. Now, uh, Todd opines that it should be a private one wheel, and maybe, maybe that's fine. Um, but whatever it is, there should be one wheel that, that's signed on so that we don't have wheels within wheels within wheels, because that is just too much to deal with when, when the distances are that far. And I don't think Zoom or Skype will work in, uh, that far into space. Well, good luck fighting the great Bavarian bureaucracies, however. Yes, well, in in the fine nation of Jeff Zikistan, uh, we we have no such concerns. Again, uh, just waiting to be corrupt and and waiting to take over a small slice of Antarctica. Uh, Those those are just the two pieces of my plan that that need to come to fruition. But but I'm looking for good privateers uh, and maybe Salvors as well. So there you go. Anyway. Thank you, guys. Thank you for bearing with me. Thank you for embracing the task. Thank you for lending your expertise. Thank you for your patience. Those listening, if you notice some tech glitches sort of towards the first third of the show, that, that was on my end. My internet went down for a bit, and both gentlemen were very patient with me. So hopefully when we edit it, 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 it seems at least semi-seamless, or at least we picked it up at the right spot. But if you heard something a little bit twice, that's why. Um, and we're going to continue with episodes of Garden Views, but we're also going to continue this journey uh, every few episodes. Uh, already have a show booked with an immigration attorney, talk about international immigration and um, international organization uh, statuses, at least in the U.S. And I uh, have a show booked with an air traffic controller as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about aviation there um, and working on stuff. Todd is helping me with some stuff. Maybe Mark will too. Who knows? I don't want to volunteer anyone, but uh, we'll see. Um, Anyway, gentlemen, thanks again. Audience, thank you for tuning in. And please make sure to tune in next time as well.
bay and it serves a hundred ships a day. Lonely sailors pass the time away and talk about their homes. And there's a girl in this harbor town and she works laying whiskey down. They say brandy, fetch another round. She serves them whiskey and wine. The sailors say brandy. You're a fine girl. What a good wife you would be. Yeah, your eyes could steal a sailor from the sea. Brandy wears a braided chain made of finest silver from the north of Spain. A locket that bears the name of a man that Brandy loved. He came. Summer's day bringing gifts from far away, but it made it clear they couldn't stay. No horror was his home. The sailors said, Brainly, you're a fine girl. Silent town and loves a man who's not around. She still can't hear him say. She hears him say, Brandy, you're a fine girl. Starting a business? On Airtasker, you can post a task for a logo designer, a website, and even an accountant to cannel the cash. And your checklist is as good as done. Visit Airtasker to get more. Dun, dun, dun.